Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. We're talking about the future of housing. We're talking about MMC, Modern Methods of Construction, five years on from the publication of Mark Farmer's seminal review, the Farmer Review, Modernise or Die. That was the uh, that was the title, Mark, wasn't it, that came back on version 27, back from Theresa May's office, and they'd made loads of changes. They'd taken out quite a lot of the punchy suggestions, but they hadn't actually looked at page one, had they? And they'd left it on the, the title that, that then became the hashtag and uh, subject line for all of the discussion ever since. Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting choice I suppose so for me I wanted the report to to have an impact and that impact clearly the biggest impact you can have is name your report in a way that actually grabs attention so the idea of calling the report modernize or die sort of evolved probably about five or six months into the process and I was unsure as to how it was going to land with the civil servants that I was working with as part of my support team but actually, it was relatively painless. So even though the content editing and, and what actually went into the final report was closely scrutinised, as, as you would imagine, actually the idea of putting it out there as a modernise or die challenge wasn't pushed back on, which I'm grateful for to, to those officials. And I think it has given the report a little bit extra oomph in terms of us being at a key time in the industry where that challenge is probably more relevant than ever. Mm. And, and one of the modernizers, so our other guest today, along with Mark Farmer, who's the boss of cast and author of the Farmer Review, we've got Chris Bone, who's chief executive founder at Modulus. Chris, do you want to tell us a little bit about what Modulus is doing and where you've come from in your career? Because you and Mark have crossed paths many times over the decades, haven't you, in, in consultancy, working on some, some pretty cool and exciting projects right across the piece. And you're now focusing on digitising housing and construction. Absolutely right, Andy. I, I came from a consulting background, starting out with a firm Whitby Bird back in the early 2000s. And whilst at, at Whitby Bird, we realised all the benefits of the different forms of construction, um, whether MMC, our, our first project in Murray Grove back in the early 2000s, was an award-winning project that opened our eyes to what could be done with um, MMC. But we also designed buildings in steel concrete, multi-storey, high-rise buildings in timber, and then projects like BBC Broadcasting House was one of the bigger ones that we worked on as a team. So amazing. As as businesses, we all crossed paths in those years, and then obviously Mark's um, report was one of our guiding lights into the world of MMC. So in terms of what you're now doing, there's two sides to Modulus, isn't there, Chris? You've got the digital platform that essentially digitizes and automates a number of key functions and disciplines alongside a bespoke kit of parts that plugs into that. So are you wanting to eat Mark's lunch in terms of digitising, design, cost consultancy, project management, logistics? Yeah, no, what we realised very quickly is that we couldn't digitise processes without having that physical kit of parts. Our long-term strategy is actually to enable other people with their own kits of parts to use our software and our platform and actually what we want to do is bring together all the different stakeholders in the process, from the landowners to the, the developers, the architects, to the, the, the manufacturers and the supply chain, to actually align all their interests and deliver many, many more homes at scale. Mm. Uh, Mark, let's talk about this alignment of interest, because I think I, I'm keen to understand what your thoughts are five years on from the report, where we've moved to, have we moved anywhere at all? So I always use the analogy of a black cab. You get in a black cab and particularly now that they've been a bit short of cash a few months there's many many times i'll be working late in the office and you do do a little ring around king's cross or darting back to Highbury, and you think mm, it's not a, this is not a 30 pound journey 
and the reason I, I go on this elaborate monologue is because you get into a taxi and that cab driver financially has no incentive to get you in the quickest time, right? Because they get paid by time. And that misalignment is, is very similar in construction and property, right? The, where is the alignment of interests? So uh, the basic structure of how we operate as an industry operates on all sorts of pretty antiquated models of transactions. So if you take the consultancy team that a client would ordinarily employ, they are giving independent professional advice, as you'd expect, but actually the outcome of the project is not something that they necessarily take risk on. And that actually, in many instances, is for good reason, in that they're not actually able to safeguard the outcome itself because it's then handed over and thrown over the fence to a contractor, invariably to deliver that, and the consultant team will have less and less control over that outcome. And I think you know, what you're alluding to there is that the industry needs much more alignment from all parties in the process to a common goal, which is, should be reflected in the way that people are engaged, how they're incentivized, the contractual framework which we operate under. At the moment, the way in which we contract, the way in which we procure, the way in which the sort of traditions of the industry weigh down on, on how we do business means that that's really difficult. And in terms of what's changed over the last five years, has any of that improved markedly? I mean, we've talked many times in the past, worked together in the past, and over the last few years, we've had a number of big collapses and and a number of big questions about building safety and, and construction quality, some of those about modular. Yeah, I, I'm going to be really frank here and say that I don't think that that basic model around aligned interests and incentivization on one shared outcome has changed at all. I just do not see real evidence points of where people are bucking the trend of how we've always done it. There is a lot of activity, don't get me wrong, in the whole modernisation space. MMC is very much in vogue at the moment in terms of understanding how people can engage with that. But the bit that's lagging is the the, the commercial structures and the contractual structures and the procurement models that enable it. So what you've got is a load of activity going on which is trying to get MMC landed in the industry. But actually there's some very practical and hard constraints in terms of how the funding works, how lawyers perceive risk transfer, how parties' business models work, actually, in in many respects. And that means that you've got a sort of square peg, in some respects, going in the round hole. And until we resolve not just the technology and and the manufacturing piece, but also the procurement models and the contractual structures, you're not ever going to get to an optimum position. And Chris Bone, from your perspective, the procurement logistics pieces, those are two of the big problems you're actually trying to solve, aren't you? You've talked about having this platform that can support all providers, all manufacturers, not just your own kit parts. And, and how do you think, from your experience over 30-odd years in the sector, how do you think that the procurement and logistics around construction can be improved and, and, and what are you doing to improve them? It's a very interesting question i think there's a, a a couple of points there firstly there's the the now and how we're doing things today as an industry what we've decided as a business to do is push the the skill set up the supply chain and have the manufacturers carry out a lot more of the skill based labor and processes and that means there's less logistics to manage downstream from that uh, there's less journeys to manage and actually by digitizing the data that runs through that process suddenly we can start to manage that in a much much more effective so you've designed uh, so essentially that the buildings that you design would have fewer assembly elements on the ground 
fewer bits to put together. Yes, the components come to us as sub-assemblies and then get assembled in a localised facility. But it's actually the, the movement of those components that we're reducing the logistics down and digitising that and allows us to manage that. And, and how does that then align with the end suppliers? So the sorts of people that you have relationships, you know, how, you know, what, what's their view on them? Basically having to do more work to sell you components. They're actually very happy with this as an approach and actually see this as the five-year view forwards. They're looking at how they can distribute their materials into the market in different forms, make more margin on carrying out other processes within that. And from their perspective, we've seen a lot of traction in how they want to supply this. And Mark, what's your view on this point, this utopia that Chris paints around pushing more of the work up the supply chain and having to do less work on the ground? Yeah, I, I, it's it's at the heart of what I put forward in my report five, six years ago now in terms of increasing the pre-manufactured value of projects. And pre-manufactured value is effectively the proportion of a project that's manufactured. That can be off-site, near-site, on-site even, but it's a manufacturing process, not a construction, traditional building process, which is where all of our problems really stem from, the disorganised, unstructured way in which we put buildings together using traditional skills and trade techniques and also using bespoke design. So the idea of increasing the pre-manufactured value of the PMV, which is at the heart of Chris's model, but in very much a kiss of parts approach, so it's it's actually looking at consolidation of multiple levels of material into sub-assemblies, is absolutely at the heart of that. It's not all about doing everything in the factory. So there's one extreme, which is about volumetric modular construction, where you're doing virtually everything in the factory. So boxes there is a- on the backs of vans, trucks... Yeah, the, the, sort of, people that and that's what most people think about when they think of modular housing. They think of yeah. So category one uh, MMC, as it's formally defined, is the commonly held sort of perception of what MMC really is. But it's a lot more than that. There's a spectrum. There's seven categories of MMC, and actually, where most of the activity I think is going to happen in the construction sector for more complex buildings and beyond just sort of single family houses in in fields is probably going to be hybrid construction, where you're using kits of parts, you're using manufactured content alongside traditional build techniques. So it becomes a very sort of under-radar increase in the PMV of projects, but it's actually incrementally increasing the amount of MMC that's being deployed. Mm. And, and Chris, so the, the sorts of products and the sorts of projects rather that you're looking initially at, they're mid-rise apartment projects. You're not looking at single-family homes like the Top Hats, the Orcas, Utopias of this world. You're, you're focusing on this, this middle ground that's largely been an untapped part of the market hasn't it i mean other than than people like vision and elements that tend to specialize more in in high-rise stuff there's not really many people focusing on mid-tier mid-sized projects no that's absolutely correct and it's part in the materials that we decided to use so we went for steel and concrete as as our two core materials for now and that allows us to build multi-story and we went for, with them for robustness and for digitizability as well, because actually what we've done is digitize this kit apart so that we can design buildings very much quicker. So that there's no point being able to build buildings in days and then taking weeks up front to design them or months even. So what we've done is digitize that kit apart so that we can design buildings using a generative design process that allows developers in the first instance to start optioneering sites, understand true costs very early in the, in the process. And then that sort of goes on to what Mark was talking about, this dispute along the chain, the value chain in the industry, where actually we can start to remove that dispute because you've got very clear views on costs from a very early stage, clear understanding of what the building's going to look like, how long it's going to take to build, and that makes that whole process much easier. Mm. And, and I guess, Mark Farmer, that time saving is 
is important, but fundamentally, people looking at this market, for even people like me who who aren't particularly informed, let's face it, will look at the construction market and they'll go, "Well, hang on, I, I, you know, having true costs, having regenerative design tools, that's all well and good, but actually, it's pretty unsustainable if I'm making a one one point five percent margin, and my client over there is making a twenty five percent margin and cashing out loads of." divvies for their shareholders how does that it comes back to this misalignment well yeah so what what so my question there is a question after all the rant the the question is if we're using some of these 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 amazing innovations that clearly are are possible because chris has just outlined them and this is what they're doing what do we need to do in order for the contractors who aren't in the room today to have more sustainable businesses because fundamentally things are only going in the wrong direction at the minute so what lies at the heart of that question is the need for the industry to make more money as a as a contracting as a construction process industry as separate from real estate and property because at the moment where money is made in the wider real estate sector is not in construction it's in land and in land speculation and it's also in sales value and exit value inflation the bit in between, which is the building of the stuff that we create as assets, is actually in many ways seen as a necessary evil and is not very lucrative for those involved, with you know some noticeable exceptions. So don't get me wrong, there's parts of the supply chain that can make good money, they can control risk, and they can actually even deliver super profit. The problem is the model that we use is all about driving revenue and cash at super thin margins. And that's not a sustainable model, as we saw with the demise of Carillion. And actually, we've got an acceleration of other financial failures now post-pandemic, which I think will continue. The target here is to cut out the waste and fund more profit from cutting out that waste. Don't charge the client more money because the clients won't pay for it. You have to actually look back into the processes that we use as an industry Look at the waste, the levels of waste in our industry are horrific in all forms of whether it's physical waste, process waste, re- reworking, transactional waste, the overhead layering that goes on around our contractual hierarchy is just too much. We need to disintermediate, cut out a lot of the middlemen in all of this. The idea of technology, kits of parts, uh, generative design enables you to get much closer to more certain net cost of production that can be offered up as a retail proposition, much like other industries. It's not like, oh, well, we'll give you an estimate and then there's a final account two years later and it will be all it will be. You know, you are actually able to give a retail price because the certainty is aligned to a different process and everyone can make more money without the client having to pay more. That feels like a bit of a utopian rant for me. Yeah, it does. But actually, Some people will, will think you're living on cloud cookie. Yeah, man. and I get that. But actually, the, the theory, I think, is going to be tested. And we're not far from some of this theory being tested in proper business models coming forward now. And Chris being an example of a company that is going to be deploying that model. And actually, the wider modular approach as well is is using that as an approach of to how that you get competitive in the market where you know mmc has historically been seen as premium cost and that's not you know we're not it's not you're not going to take market share if you're constantly saying to the client it's great but you're going to pay more for it so you they the mmc industry is having to look in on itself in terms of how it uses process waste reduction as a means of becoming more competitive mm. and, and this chris bone is a big element of how your business of how your own business is founded, really, this this focus on sustainability, focus on reducing waste, focusing also on healthy materials as well, so that you are able to to offer something that, that's genuinely going to be future-proofed. Absolutely right. And I think just picking up what Mark said about waste, 
I heard a statistic recently that 30% of every construction project goes into landfill. And, and that's an astonishing number. And when you actually take out any proportion of that waste, not just from an environmental perspective, but from a cost perspective, that starts to free up margin. So actually, it's in all our interest to drive down waste and, and designing for manufacturing and assembly. It's a, it's a buzzword that people are using, but we've really got to get to a point where we're using that to drive out waste altogether. And when you yes, I think DFMA sounds like an electro band, doesn't it? It is. I didn't call it DFMA, you did. Uh, <laughs> but I suppose the question that people want to know, because you know they've heard, heard us ranting on about MMC for years on this podcast, and we've done many focuses on it over the years, and, and a lot of people will still be cynical about it because they will look at it and go, well, the quality's not there, it costs more, and there's always an excuse... And they'll also point to, I guess, Grenfell and some of the safety issues that we've had over the last few years and, and say, well, clearly it doesn't make sense to do that. Where do you then sit on the safety side of, of the fence? Yeah, it's absolutely imperative. We have a team of engineers who actually were expert witnesses at Grenfell. We know exactly what went on there and, and we worked with some of the lawyers involved in the inquiry. And when we bring that level of expertise into a precision-engineered product, and we keep talking about it being a product because you design it, you design it and you keep evolving that design until it's better and better. I, then people can talk about quality and MMC. I totally disagree with that. I think actually the MMC provides you the opportunity to create great quality in and around precision manufacturing. Now, if you then take that towards what you were talking about, sustainability, we can get to net zero level of homes using a fabric first approach. Uh, with some renewable energy added onto that. And as a result, we're actually giving sustainable, healthy homes using healthy materials. There's no materials of concern on the red list, the toxic materials. We don't use any of those. You can actually get to a point where you've got a sustainable, healthy home at an affordable price. And, and that, from our perspective, is what's got to be pushed out into the marketplace. And is there, Mark Farmer, is there going to be a reckoning when it comes to materials and toxic materials particularly? Because... We don't really hear a lot about that in the UK. There's a lot of focus on air quality. Well, there's always been a lot of focus on air quality in, in the States. That's now more pervasive here. But there isn't really any focus on, on whether we should be using non-toxic solvents, materials, paints. Do you think there is scope for that to become a bigger part of the conversation, construction? Yeah, I think it's already happening. You know, clearly, the recyclability of materials is already starting to, to come right to the front of the agenda. The circular economy debate is really taking hold. And where you've got materials... Just explain what that means, circular economy. What does that mean? So effectively, that... you know, it's the whole concept of... Because there's a carbon linkage here. So when we build something, uh, to date, our default presumption has been if you want to put something new on a particular site with an existing building, you knock the existing build over and you start again. And that demolition process hugely wasteful in terms of the embodied carbon already in the pre-existing structure but to think differently about how you might adapt how you might modify how you might reuse particular components and and sub-assemblies within buildings needs to be thought about at the point of design now if you have materials that have chemical characteristics that are going to make it difficult for them to be recycled and particularly go to landfill because you're mm. creating a negative legacy then that's going to stop some of that happening and actually some of that exists in some key areas of the market where we're trying to use sustainable materials like timber but actually they're currently being combined with adhesives 
that are actually intrinsically difficult to recycle. So there's challenges across the market, as well as the more traditional ones you would have heard on the back of Grenfell and the evidence given there around the different materials of fire insulation, etc. So we have to think holistically about materials from a combustibility perspective, from their chemical makeup and the risks around the future of our planet in terms of what that means as a legacy. All of that has to be thought of in the round and ultimately probably needs to be regulated better. So this is, is going to point towards better building regulations, better product testing, R&D. And you know it's, it needs to be seen as a positive legacy of both the decarbonisation agenda and the building safety agenda. Because at the minute, they're quite separate, aren't they? We've, we've got one hand talking about climate, another hand, well, they've given up talking about planning, but they're still talking about building homes. And should there be a bit more joined up thinking at the top of government that pulls these things together that says, if you want to meet all these climate targets, you should be focusing more on precision engineered buildings? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, the building safety bill that's going through process at the moment, to an extent, was a bit of a missed opportunity to better signpost the role of pre-manufacturing as a route to delivering safer buildings, subject to the checks and balances of accredited systems, proper R&D, testing, etc. So I think where, where the building safety bill has gone is to the sort of presumption that we're going to move to become a competent industry. Competence is a word that appears a lot in that whole piece of legislation. And I think that's a high risk because ultimately competence is hard-earned. It's a function of the skills and the people of our industry, actually, and we know we're already struggling in that regard. So to presume that we're going to bring this new structure in a new process into our industry and it's going to be based on competence and you won't be able to get from A to B unless you've been signed off and it's been done by a competent person... I think is dangerous when in reality it should have been more a blended approach that included the concept of MMC, high quality MMC, digital manufacturing, digital assurance as being a route to how we're going to achieve better, safer outcomes rather Mm. than just relying on everyone working in our industry getting better, which is a a big call. Yeah. And one problem you don't seem to have at the minute, Chris Bone, is skills. You've you've just recently, I'm going to change tack a little bit, but you've recently brought on board a really awesome team in the States, you're launching in America. You've hired some senior figures from Katera. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like, how you're going to be expanding into the States, what some of the challenges are going to be there, and, and what some of these folks are going to be bringing to the party. Yeah, when we heard about uh, the demise of Katera, we, we jumped on LinkedIn. We found a, a team of rock stars, as we called them at the time, who were head of architecture product BD and process, and we've we've brought them into our team. We've integrated them into our team as our as our US facing team, but also to help us develop our product and capability here in the UK. So it's it's a dual it's a dual approach. Uh, we see the US market as as obviously a far larger market than the market here in the UK. And we're kicking off in in California, based out of Seattle, which is slightly odd, but that's the way we're doing it. Mm. Um, and we see the Californian market being of a similar size to the UK market. So. In the not-too-distant future, we believe that we can roll out homes as quickly there as we can here. What are you taking as learnings from Katera? Some people would say, well, if Katera can't make it work with the bottomless cash that they had from SoftBank, then how are you, Modulus, going to make it work? What's the differences in the well, business? Our, our business model is the antithesis of Katera's. Um, we're the asset-like model. They were the asset-heavy model. They bought the supply chain and vertically integrated it. We own no supply chain. We just use specialists within that space. 
they needed $2 billion to grow that business using their business model. We don't. To grow our business model, it makes us much more agile and means that we can move in and out of markets much, much quicker mm. and deliver homes much more effectively. And you've got some really interesting investors, haven't you? There's a right old mix of interesting folk from Blackhorn, one of the major prop tech VCs in the States. And you've got Semex Ventures, which is the venture arm of the global construction conglomerate. How do they all sit around the table together? It must be quite a mixed bag. It is, and it's great because we've got a, a nice spread of strategic and financial investors. Blackhorn are an awesome VC fund in Denver. They're looking to change old industries using new technologies. Semex are looking to invest in software and technologies that will move the world away from the world of concrete where they live in and into that digital space. We've, we've also got a, an investor in Canada, Groundbreak Ventures, who are part of a major real estate business there and a fund here in London called Goldacre with whom we worked on an accelerator program last year. So a widespread of investors, all with different aims and ambitions in different geographical locations, but is giving us the, the ability to scale into those different jurisdictions. And how scalable, Mark Farmer, is the whole MMC universe? From well, investing, if you're, you know, if you, you must get calls from investors that say, hey, Mark, I've seen this firm, want to invest, you know, how kosher is it? So it, it's clearly there's a lot of headroom. So we're not doing a lot of modern methods at the moment relative to traditional. So if you look at the opportunity, it's huge. And bearing in mind that the capital spend gross value out of construction, not just in the UK, but globally. And then you look at the proportion which is currently being delivered through various forms of innovative construction. It's a huge market opportunity to go at. The critical thing for investors is not scattergunning around and just thinking that trying to get a foothold in something where you haven't done your due diligence. So understanding what you're investing into, understanding the scalability of the platform that you're investing into, uh, understanding the technical concept that's being deployed is really important. And Chris's point about the differentiation between asset heavy and asset light is a critical one here in terms of risk and understanding how you go to market. So the asset heavy approach is the one that's probably most well known in terms of big factories being set up with that are loss making in the early years and that's just to be expected a lot of the press get on top of that and think actually that's a negative but that's business startup world for vertically integrated investment heavy ventures there are some interesting ways in which you don't have to go down that route but you can create scalability through thinking as a digital technology enabled platform with some front end work done around digital inventory and supply chain pre-assembly that can replicate that but in a very different way in terms of how it comes together and so i think investors need to understand that so investors have to be well advised technically so you can't it's difficult to come into this market and just make a play without knowing what the opportunity is and as chris has just reeled off with the number of investors that are supporting modulus this is clearly an interesting space for a lot of investors at the moment they are keen to get exposure to it they see construction as one of the least automated industries out there a lot of headroom to go after as i've said but they are being very careful about how they deploy their capital and quite rightly so Hmm. And Chris, so you, you're going to be raising some more money at some point. You, you've raised quite a lot already this year, and that's allowed you to expand your team pretty comprehensively, hasn't it, in terms of having different designers, coders, developers, and a blend of, of more traditional skills under the same roof as some of the more tech and uh, digitally enabled folk. Yes, it's, it's an, an interesting situation. where We've got a digital business and a physical business running in parallel with each other, trying to learn and be informed from each other one moving at 100 miles an hour and one trying to keep up. 
And what we're now trying to do is bring in more bright people from outside of this industry to challenge the way that we do things, to look at how the automotive and aerospace industries work and try to find better solutions to the problems that we all come across in a a day-to-day world of construction. And and, um, it makes it very exciting and it makes the breadth of people within the business very diverse and, um, yeah, great place to be. And on that point, let's finish up on that point, Mark, in terms of skills and diversifying the skills base. I know it's something from our chats over the years that this is of importance to you in bringing people into your business, into casts that don't necessarily come from the traditional Reading, Oxford Brooks, real estate courses and, and having extra skills, having digital people, having data people particularly that can help solve some of the problems we haven't thought of yet. Yeah, you know, professional services, there's a particular angle here about what is the future of work for consultancy? What's the future of work for the professions? And there's lots of debate as to what that looks like. The idea of being a trusted advisor, which is what most professionals would like to see themselves as, is going to get challenged as we move towards technology-enabled solutions where people just want the right answers. How they get there, they're not overly fussed about. So there is this really interesting... So you're, not, of, you're not fussed about Chris eating your lunch with his digital cost no, tool? No, absolutely. And I say that generally because our business plan at Cast, you know, we've, been, we've seen this coming for a long time. So the idea of potentially being disintermediated, to use that term again, cut out of the loop if you're not actually part of the solution in a sort of aligned interest sense, we see as being a driver of changing our model. So we, we've been very clearly looking at both our skills and competences in the business and also how we might deploy them in different models using higher levels of pre-manufactured value to get involved in more delivery. So not just sitting there and telling people how much it's going to cost or how long it's going to take, but actually then doing something about it and being part of an integration, construction integration solution towards making that happen on site. That clearly is an education for consultants as to what risk they're prepared to take. And there's a whole process there of getting comfortable with that in line with manufacturing techniques. But also your point about the skills that we're now seeking new talent from or or the sources we're, we're seeking new talent from rather is absolutely right. We're looking for aptitude. We're looking for fluid intelligence we're not looking for cognate skills necessarily in the more traditional buckets of just quantity surveying or project management or engineering we're actually looking at people with wider skills that actually show aptitude for learning and ability to flex because there's going to be a lot of change in what we ask our people to do i think over the next five to ten years Mm. And, and chris just reflecting on going back to where we started going back to five years on from the farmer review we've got a new boss in the ministry, ministry of, of D-luck, depending on how you pronounce it. They're probably going to need a lot of luck over the next few years. But when Mr. Gove is now going to be faced with a few unenviable tasks, fixing the cladding, building safety scandals, probably top of his list, building homes, particularly in areas where nobody wants those homes, that's going to be a bit of a challenge as well. But he's got an opportunity, doesn't he, Mr. Gove, to potentially change the game in terms of skills the climate issue when it comes to constructing homes. What are some of the things that the ministry needs to do, do you think, to move that forward a bit more quickly? The, the ministry and Homes England are already doing an awful lot for this sector. There's there's capital coming through that's mandated to be used for MMC. I think what they've now got to do is encourage the development of MMC, not the use of MMC. They actually need to work with the, the sector and look at how they can scale that because actually... If you look at the number of homes, Mark talks about the deficit of 140,000 homes a year, and then you look at some of the big manufacturers making three to 5,000 homes a year, you need an awful lot more factories 
end-to-end at an awful lot of capex in order to solve this problem. So it's actually looking at different ways that we can approach the problem. We can work together as a, as a sector, the MMC sector, together to help each other develop more homes and deliver more homes and not just take this rather siloed approach to different aspects of the industry. And I think it's all got to come together. Everyone's got to align their ambitions. We've got to look at the supply chain. So they've got to work with the private sector as much as the putting capital through the, the, the public sector. Mm. And final word there, Mark Farmer, what are you hoping to achieve over the next couple of years in your role supporting government, trying to move everything forward? So, so for me, I think the last five years have been successful in as much as MMC is very clearly on the agenda now politically. So I, I don't think I, we, we could have got to a better position around political awareness of the need to modernise construction and home building. The key thing for the next period is how do we actually mature the market and pick up on some of what Chris said there? How do we overcome some of the blockers? How do we create scalability? How do we create responsible innovation? So we do not want anything to go wrong here that leaves a poor legacy. We want high quality work that we'll look back on and be proud of a new way of building that's going to stand the test of time. It's not going to be a fad it's actually going to be something that's with us for a long, long time. And so my focus will be on that sort of next phase, if you like, of the MMC journey. Excellent. Well, thank you then to Mark Farmer, boss of Cast, author of the Farmer Review, to Chris Bone, founder at Modulus. I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to get involved, please get in touch, uh, send us a message. You can subscribe to PropCast on Spotify, on Apple, and uh, do keep checking back for future episodes. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye.